0: Pastor Ronnie called me Friday, and he said, Hey, would you be willing to speak, preach this morning? I said, Sure. I said, What do you want me to, to preach about? He said, I want you to kind of take advantage of this Genesis movie that we just saw, um, which, by the way, was phenomenally good, very, very good. I'm sure it will come out on DVD sometime in the near future, and I'll own a copy or two or ten or twenty. And... Um, I will then do all that's within my power to get everybody that I know to see it yet again. But uh, he said that – I asked him, I said, well, what portion of that do you want me to speak about? And he said, well, just talk about theistic evolution. And I thought, well, that will be so easy because I've written so much about it and I've studied so much about it. I mean my master's was in apologetics. A lot of what I was studying was – the ideas and outworkings of different veins of theistic evolution. So I thought, well, I'll get home and I'll whip this thing together and it won't be a problem. And it was a little bit like going home to eat an elephant. There's so much there, like where do you start? I wrote 238 pages just for my master's thesis and maybe another hundred or so on different papers and projects that I had done as a master in, in my master's degree just on theistic evolution, and uh, so it was a little like trying to take four or 500 hours worth of stuff and like, hey, let me just condense this down about 40 minutes, and that's going to be really tough for me to do. So if it's a train wreck this morning, that's because of me, all right? Yeah, blame Ronnie, that's right, yeah, it's his fault. Um, if you would, turn with me, though, to Ephesians chapter 4. I think that's going to be the starting point that will be most helpful to us. I guess I better turn this on first. I want to remind you of Matthew 12.30. Before we get here, okay, just as laying some groundwork, I feel like what I'm doing is I'm jumping into this thing and I'm taking for granted that some of you are on the same page as me, okay? You're on the same page, you're on the same wavelength, you're thinking the same way. I want to remind you of this because I really believe this. I believe the problem with theistic evolution in the church today is that we don't even understand what the problem is. We think that's the problem. The problem is we got so many of these professors in these seminaries teaching theistic evolution. No, that is not the problem. That is a symptom of the problem. The problem is much, much deeper. We, the church, we're like a a fat man, like myself. We're like a fat man that's been sitting on a couch for a couple of months eating nothing but Cheetos. And he starts getting sick and he goes to the doctor and the doctor says, hey man, you know, you you got a flu. And we think that's the problem. And so we take all the medication to treat the flu and don't understand why we keep getting sick. The problem is that we're treating the symptom. We don't even understand what the problem is. Theistic evolution is a symptom it's a symptom of a much larger deeper problem in our culture and i want to get to that basically it's it's not understanding this verse one if i could take one verse and print it into every christian's mind it would be this one jesus christ these are in your bible you'll notice matthew 12:30 is in red there's a reason for that jesus christ says this he who's not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. In other words, there is no neutrality when it comes to worldviews. Zero. None. There are no people who are neutral. There are no institutions who are neutral. There are no powers or, or social entities which are neutral. You are in one of two camps. Either you are actively for propagating, promulgating the glory of Christ, or you are actively against it, period. I'm sorry, I'm getting really worked up, aren't I? It makes me angry because we as a church, as a Christian people, we don't understand this. And I am not talking about happy, clappy, flappy, Word of Faith Church across town. I'm not talking about the incredibly liberal, I don't even know if it's a church, Episcopal Church down the street or Methodist Church. Down. I'm talking about in the Reformed Church today. We do not grasp this principle at all. We can't see it. If I preach this, everybody in a Reformed church will say, Amen, brother, I believe that. And when I start pointing this out in their lives, they're going to say, now now, hold on a second here. That's a true story. Well, that, I don't know if they're really against it. Mean, they're, they're more neutral. Okay, Okay, you don't understand this then. If we're in Saudi Arabia, I'd say, well, are you going to send your kids to the uh, imams? Well, no. Why not? Well, they're not preaching Jesus. Oh, okay. Okay. So they're against Christ. Well, yeah, obviously. But we don't even see it in our own culture. We will grab on to the things of this culture. We're being Hellenized. And that's what I want to talk about today. We are literally, do you all know what Hellenization is? Have you heard that term before? Raise your hand if you ever heard that term somewhere. I'm not real sure what It's kind of fuzzy, but I've heard it before. It's like Greek, Greekifying, right? Yeah. Um, Let me read this passage and we'll get into this because I'm trying to jump ahead here. Forgive me for getting so worked up. uh, (laughs) I'm just that way. I'd like to give an excuse for it, but my wife knows me better. We were talking last night, I've I've got an aunt who if I ask her, she'll tell me she's a Christian and the whole time her children were growing up uh, they're now in. Uh, are they both in college or just the one? I think I think the ones in college and ones maybe a senior in high school. Um, while they're growing up, she'd bring them out to Oklahoma every year, and she would call my wife and I and say, "Look, you've got to come be around these my my kids because you know their dad's not really he's not a Christian, he's he's not really you know he 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 doesn't teach them the things of Christ, and so we need these other good influences, so come over here and teach them Jesus." So she'd bring them down for a week in the summertime. And of course I'm going to take that opportunity. I'm going to do everything I can to introduce Christ and to talk about the gospel and talk about a worldview and to challenge the assumptions that they had and give them things to make them think. But the problem is that mom can't even see the problem. Mom's idea of discipleship is I'm going to let everybody on earth talk to, teach, and raise my child, and one week, a year, I'm going to take them to Paul and Reagan, and they'll fix them. We do the same thing you know why youth camps are such a cottage industry? Pastor, something wrong with my, my boy. I don't, he just don't, he don't act like a Christian. You're kidding. Where could he have gotten it from? I don't know. He needs to go to youth camp. Oh, that'll fix him. I'm sure that'll fix it. That'll undo the hundreds and thousands of hours of humanistic thinking that's gone on in his mind and his presence Give them a week at church camp, that'll do it. We don't even get the problem. Here's what it says, Ephesians 4. Let's, uh, let's start here at let's see, set, uh, 14. We should no longer be children, this is Ephesians 4, starting at 14. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, interesting, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, joint and knit together by whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in testifying the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, catch this, in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Some uh, translations will say because of the hardness of their heart. In other words, Paul's saying this, the hardness of their heart is causing them not to think correctly. And yet we in the church are falling all over ourselves to try to do our best to think like them. Paul says, and he piles these phrases up and keeps on going, the problem with the unregenerate man is he does not think correctly because his heart is hardened and it keeps him blind. He cannot see truth. He cannot process information correctly. Going on. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them because of the hardness of their heart. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. You could put it this way. They're very self-serving. I'm sure there's nobody in our culture that's like that today, and there's probably no institutions teaching that today. But you have not so learned in Christ. In other words, Jesus' way of thinking is diametrically opposed to this system. If indeed you've been taught by him, if indeed you've heard of him, as truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and catch this, be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice how Paul piles up these statements. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Their understanding is darkened. Romans, Paul goes on to tell us they are fools. And we want to learn about their ways. You're a fool. Teach me how to think like you. That's exactly what we've done in the church. We have willingly subjected ourselves to our culture's version of Hellenization. Okay? Willingly. Not only have we subjected ourselves, we've subjected our children. We've subjected everybody that we could find to the process of our culture's version of Hellenization. And lo and behold, how crazy, a hundred years later, we have people who are trying to take the Bible and amalgamate it or conflate it, mix it together with certain parts of Christianity, and we think that's a problem. No, that's a symptom. That's what's come out of the problem. That's just a ramification of the pro- That's not the problem itself. The problem itself is we're Hellenized. That's the problem. Let me back up. Let me tell you something. There is no Hebraist. That is someone who's a very obviously close student of hebrew who will tell you that genesis looks like it was written like poetry now you will hear lots of theologians say that but the reason they say that is they have ulterior motives for saying that it is not because of something they found in the text i'm going to show it to you very quickly there are two ways of writing in hebrew roughly there are different stems and such but there are two ways there is poetry and there's narrative and how can we tell the difference well Man, I don't know, that's just really tough. You know, that first 11 chapters of Genesis, I mean, it looks like poetry to me. Well, if you knew Hebrew, it would not. Let me show you why. Hebrew narrative is put in a very specific manner. The verb, then the subject, then the object, VSO. The verb comes first, then the subject, then the object. If it is written that way, it is written that way so that the reader knows this is a narrative account. Whoever wrote this, thought this was true historical fact. When poetry is written, it is written subject, verb, object. That is to let the reader know this may or may not be actual history. It might be, but it could be interpreted a different way. The Psalms are written this way, Hebrew poetry. Does that mean that all the parts of the Psalms are not historically factual? No, but it does mean there are parts of the Psalms which can be interpreted as something different than literal historical narrative, aren't there? Of course there are. Are there there lots of different metaphors and figures of speech? Oh, yes, of course. But what we know by reading that is, hey, the guy that wrote this did not think this was just a historical narrative. He was obviously writing a song. And there are certain parts of this that are going to be treated like a song. Verb, subject, object is narrative. Okay, so... Let me just show you, in the Hebrew Bible, the first part of Genesis. Remember, Hebrew is written from right to left. Okay? In the beginning created God, the heavens and the earth, the earth and the earth. That looks kind of weird, doesn't it? It's emphatic. Here's what it is. Verb, subject, the object. Verb, subject, object. It is very clear to anyone who reads Hebrew... This is obviously not poetic. This is narrative. So you have two choices if you're a Hebraist. You say, yeah, okay, whoever wrote this, I would argue it's Moses, but I know there's lots of big academic debate about that. Whoever wrote this, at least themselves, they thought it was, now they may be wrong, but they at least thought this was historical narrative. Are you with me? Okay, that's the fight. When you hear a theologian tell you, well, we don't really know what Genesis 1-11 to means, and you ought to ask him the same question about 12. How do we know what 12 means? Why is there a shift from 11 to 12? Anybody know? What happens in Genesis chapter 12? Kind of a big deal to Judaism, the Christian faith, and some others. Who comes on the scene? Anybody know? Abram. And we are not willing to let go and say he was a fig- he's got to be a literal person, right? Now, we will argue, when I say we... Theologians will argue that everything up to then was hey, it's mythical. You know, it's probably poetic. It, at least it's not. It's figurative. Here's my question: If Abraham's literal, what figurative person gave birth to him? How do you do that? I mean, well, we don't think Adam and Eve was really was it real people. I mean, they weren't real people. Well, what about their sons then? And their sons, and their sons. What about Noah? Well, we're, we're not really, I don't, we don't know about that. I had a kid that was in my youth group years and years ago. He got a, scored a 32 or 4 on his ACT. Incredibly smart kid. Got an honors scholarship to go to Oral Roberts University, which I at the time thought, oh, that's a pretty conservative school. Okay, great. He was in the honors program the first week he calls me back. He says, hey, I'm going to start uh, taping these lectures because I don't, I don't think you realize what's going on up here. Okay, cool. So he records the lecture Puts it online, sends it to me in an email. Here's what the guy is saying. You know, we're pretty sure Jesus was an actual historical figure. Uh, we don't think Moses probably is or Abraham, you know. We're not real sure about uh, Abraham or any, any, you know, any of those guys. But we're, we're pretty sure Moses and Adam, th- those, are just, those are just legends. That's what's going on at the Christian universities of our day. Now listen to me. I mean this that's a symptom of the problem. It's a symptom How bad's it gotten the problem with theistic evolution is it's the theistic evolution in the problem Here's the real problem. i I'm, I know this is kind of quippy. It sounds tautological But it, hey, it sounds really relevant, right? Because it's quippy The real problem is that a large group of people think like uh, think that they're Christian, but they don't think like they're Christian we said again. The real problem is a large group of people think that they're Christian, but they don't think like they're Christian. And the only thing that we make them prove, for them to teach at one of our beloved Christian institutions, is that they have a knowledge of the field, and they can answer some very basic questions about Christian doctrine. Are you saved? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have you teach the science courses then. Oh, okay. We ask them nothing of their worldview. We don't make sure their worldview is coherent. That's a problem. They think they're Christian, but they don't think like they're Christian. Let me tell you. Let me show you how how bad it's really gotten. Two nationwide surveys that just blew my mind. 2009. Folks, it's 2017. It hasn't gotten better since 2009. 2009. Barna and Pew Research Groups revealed only 8.6% of American Christians polled had what they called a biblical worldview. (laughs) nine percent now watch this this is incredible to me watch how low the bar is to have a biblical worldview you only had to agree with these six propositions number one absolute moral truth there's such a thing as moral truth that seems like pretty low bar there is such a thing as truth truth actually exists okay number two the bible is accurate in all the principles that it teaches it doesn't even have to be verbally or plenarily accurate or inspired just has to be right in the principles that it teaches. Satan is a real being, not just symbolic. It's pretty basic. A person can't earn their way to heaven. Self-righteousness, right? It's pretty basic. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. Like 56% of people responded he did not. But they're Christians. They don't understand how that, that, that impacts the God. If Jesus wasn't sinless, you can't be saved by him. He has to die for his own sins. Well, nobody's perfect. Okay, well, if Jesus wasn't perfect, why are you a Christian? It does you no good. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the world. That's it. There's nothing about inerrancy up there. There's nothing about a literal creation. There's nothing about a literal flood. There's nothing about uh, the bodily ascension of Christ. There are a lot of things left out, and only 9%, less than 9%, 9% of the Christians responding to the survey could say yes to these six things that's the problem There's a lot of people who sit in a pew on sunday morning you ask them if they're christian they'd say yes They have no idea what that means They have no idea how to think like a christian And so they're the ones lobbing bombs at their own worldview in the culture three people when I was an undergrad at east central university uh, vehemently um, disagreed with darwinism three people um, Took me into their office and threatened that they were going to get rid of me I will make sure you do not gra- I literally had a person tell me that I will make sure you do not graduate this university If you keep causing trouble about darwinism If you are going to teach some kind of sunday school faith, i'm going to make sure you don't graduate from here You want to know the cra- crazy thing? None of them were atheists All three of them were theistic evolutionists, and one of them was a deacon at a very large Baptist church here in town. That was who had the problem with me, holding to creation. That's the problem. We are being Hellenized. Let me give you just a real quick history lesson. Hellenization, basically it's the Greekifying of the culture. And the guy that was the absolute mastermind of it, his name was Alexander the Great. He conquered a lot of different people groups. And one of the things that happened was, that as he was, con- he was Greek, obviously he's conquering these people groups, he's saying, how are we going to get these conquered people to not rebel against us? That's the problem. That's the, the problem of every conquesting civilization is, once you defeat a people group, how do you keep them from rebelling and overthrowing you 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later? Alexander the Great had a great idea. He really did. Genius in the way that he applied it. He said well, it's very simple People always rebel against a culture that's not their own So what we will do is assimilate them into our culture We'll force them to be greeks We're going to greekify the world That's exactly what he did So he went into different towns. He built great libraries Remember greek culture was about learning Now listen to me and I say this because you're going to miss this Education is discipleship It's not a part of It doesn't have something to do with it is discipleship If I ask most christians, what does it mean to be a disciple? They'll say it means following jesus Yes, that's true in the in the slang that we use the word disciple to mean the word literally means a pupil or a learner Education is discipleship So what did this guy do to make sure these cultures will never rebel against me? Very simple. I'm going to take my culture into their area, and I'm going to force them to learn my culture. you know what happened to the Jews under Hellenization? They were fighting to see who could be the greatest Greek. What was it that the Greeks brought to that civilization? Here's what they brought. They brought big libraries. They had all their great philosophers and mathematicians of the day, right? Hey, you should read this guy, this Plato guy, right? He's pretty smart. Hey, this is Socrates, man, he's smart. This Aristotle guy, right, who was the personal tutor of Alexander the Great. You need to read about these guys, right? These mathematicians that we have and all this other learning. And hey, we're also going to bring this new thing. Hey, this is a great expansion program. This is, hey, we're making this place great. We're making Greece great again. They were. We're going to install a gymnos. Yeah, gymnasiums. So the Greek word gymnos, which is a sexual term, actually has to do with your, you know, reproducing. And when you were in the gym, you had, to, you had to go naked, didn't you? Men only, and you had to compete naked. Make sure you're not hiding anything, right? Don't put a razor in your shorts. And if you're naked, you can't hide it. You know what happened to the Jews? What was different about the Jews than the Greeks? What did they do to those little Hebrew boys when they were eight days old? Circumcised them. And those Jewish boys went into those gymnasiums, and those Greeks said, Oh, freaks. What is that? And you know what happened? didn't happen in the first generation. No. When those young Greek men who had been to those gymnasiums and had been ridiculed for being a Jew grew up, guess what they stopped doing? They'd have children of their own one day, wouldn't they? I'm not going to let my kids suffer that kind of humiliation, that kind of, that kind of ridicule. Hey, don't circumcise them. You know what happened to the Jews? Give them a few generations. You know what they became? They became Greeks. That's interesting to me because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we preach Christ. To the Jews, he's a stumbling block, but to the Greeks, he's foolishness. And we've got an entire culture of young men and women who think Christ is literally foolishness. I wonder where they got that we're being hellenized and we don't even know it at least the jews of that time understood that at least they were cognizant of the fact we're not you know why we think everybody's neutral hey that school that i send my kids to it's neutral the college that i go to, it's neutral that guy he's a scientist he wouldn't lie to us for, for on purpose i mean he's neutral he's not a biased observer he just reports the facts that's what scientists do Really? I would love to talk about the pages and pages and scores of articles that have had to be redacted in the last few years because they were faked in popular science journals. Peer reviewed. Science magazine had to take, I think, 46, 48 of them. That's a lot. They were faked? Yeah, they were faked. Well, scientists wouldn't do that, they're not biased. We don't believe that scripture. We say we believe Matthew twelve thirty, but we don't really believe it. We don't. It does not show in our lives. We're being Hellenized by our culture. We don't even know it. And then we get a professor who comes into our OBU or comes into you know one of the Christian universities, and he's spouting off this nonsense, and we go, I don't know where he got that. I'll tell you where he got that. He grew up in a home where he heard Jesus on one hand, but was presented secular humanism as just neutral science, and he's not sure how to square those facts. He doesn't know how to make those two things line up. I went to church. My, my parents dragged me to church, and I heard all these Bible stories. I, I, I think they're true. Maybe they're true. I hope they're true, some of them anyway. Maybe not all of them, but... Many some of them though. But then I went to school, remember? That's where I learned real history. Oh, the Bible's real history? No, no, no. We've learned real history in school. Yeah. That's where we learn the real facts at. We learn about the real history, we learn real science. We learn real English. That's where real learning takes place. And so in my learning over here, conflicts with my learning over here, I've got to figure out a way to reduce the tension. We, there's a big term in philosophy. It's called cognitive dissonance. I now am holding in my mind two worldviews that don't fit together, and I've got to figure out a way to make them fit. I can't imagine rejecting this. I mean, everybody knows that stuff's real history. Don't know what happened there. Oh, okay. Everybody knows this stuff is real history. I can't just throw all that out. Everybody knows this stuff is real, uh, real science. can't just throw that out. So what am I going to do? I've got to somehow amalgamate the two. I have to blend them. And that's exactly what's happened. It didn't happen overnight. Theistic evolution did not become... By the way, today the mainstay of the church is theistic evolution. The mainstay of... In academia... Maybe I should rephrase that. The mainstay of Christian professors at uh, higher educational institutions, so colleges, universities, are theistic evolutionists of some stripes. Now, we've got lots of different words to use for it. We don't just call it theistic evolution now. We call it progressive creationism, or I like this. This is my new favorite. Evolutionary creationist. I'm an evolutionary creationist. I believe that God created by evolution. No, sir, you're a deist. You just like a fancy term. Let me read this to you. I'm going to read a little piece. This is... This is how bad it's gotten. This is from my thesis. It it gives me almost P uh, you know PTSD to like read it again. I wanted to forget that part of my life. There was a woman though, um, Dr. Elizabeth Mitchell, who was she's got it. She's nailed it on the head. She is uh, married to a guy who's also a doctor and a very strong creationist, and she has got this down. And she wrote an article to the Economist, and she said this. All scientific facts are interpreted according to the biases of the observer. Consequently, the things a scientist assumes are true will greatly influence his interpretation of the data. She's exactly right. The problem in science today is not arguing over facts. It has nothing to do with facts. We're all playing with the same set of facts. It's how those facts are interpreted. How bad is it? Here, let me let me give you some... Um, Let me give you some quotes from Christians. These are, quote, evangelical. They have a high view of Scripture. That's what it means to be evangelical, right? High view of Scripture. That's what they say. Dennis Lamoureux says this. There's no evidence for a historical Adam. The the Bible is an ancient science book filled with archaisms and metaphors. Adam's real? Are you kidding me? When my professors told me they wanted me to write on the historical Adam, I was not excited like, why? The historical Adam? That's stupid. Like, everybody knows there's a historical Adam. That's how naive I was, I guess. No, 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 there's lots of academic papers flying about whether Adam was actually a real person. I'm like, are you kidding me? They're flying in evangelical places or they're flying in academia? Well, yeah, and Bible colleges. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have Bible college professors who think Adam is not real, correct? Lots of them. Yeah, but what about in conservative Bible college? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Southern the Baptist. You know why I chose the seminary that I chose, Luther Rice. Because that's where Dr. Henry Morris got his Ph.D. They teach biblical creation. They're strong, and they really did. And when I started the program, it was awesome. And you know what happened while I was in it? 2012, 2013, somewhere in there, they got a new guy. Boy, he was a smart guy. Must be smart. Got his Ph.D. from Duquesne, Catholic University. I won't go into that. I'm not a Pope lover. Not a big fan of the Catholic University. And he came in and they said, you know, you're so smart. Let's make you the head of the apologetics department. Ooh, that's, that's good. That's good. And I had a bunch of friends in Christian academic circles who were like, oh, you've got to study under this guy. He's really well-known. How's he well-known? Well, lots of people talk really highly about him. You know, well, like who? There was all these atheists. He's got it down. He understands science. Oh, okay, I get it. So we've got this guy who's got a big degree and a big name, and we think he should be the head of the department because other non-believers speak highly of him. Do you see any problem with this? Most institutions don't. Here's Peter Enns. Historical Adam has been the dominant Christian view for two thousand years, but. We have to add that the general consensus was formed before the advent of evolutionary theory. And therefore, it's wrong. Evolution demands that the special creation of the first atom, as described in the Bible, is not literally historical. He's a smart guy teaching in a Bible college. Teaching in a reformed Bible college. Dennis Lamoureux goes on, There's no doubt in my mind that biological evolution is a fact. It's also clear that human evolution is a fact. And in light of the recent genetic evidence, it's a fact that humans didn't descend from one pair of humans. Though many evangelicals would disagree with me, these three statements are embraced by the Biologos Foundation out of Biola University, which is where John MacArthur graduated, which is one of the reasons John MacArthur had to start his own school because he couldn't send his own students to the school that he came from because they had compromised so much. I, I got asked to uh, be part of a large creation ministry and to speak for him and go on some different deals and do seminars with him and stuff. And the guy that founded that ministry it was very good friends with Henry Morris and with John MacArthur and a couple of other guys. They've kind of rubbed shoulders over forty years of ministry. And so we're talking a couple of weeks ago and he said, you know, like a decade ago John MacArthur and I were talking about the problem with theistic evolution. And he said, John MacArthur told me, he said, uh Dr. Sharp, this guy's name is Thomas Sharp. He says I I only can think of a handful, less than half a dozen, universities in the entire U.S. that still teach biblical creation. They still teach that Genesis is a reliable historical source. Now listen, folks. In, in the year 2000, the United States had more seminaries and Bible colleges than all of the rest of the world combined. The majority of Christian literature is coming from people who have graduated from those institutions, the Christian Bible colleges in America, and the majority of those Bible colleges are teaching I, – I, I don't know if I'd call it heretical doctrine, but incredibly erroneous doctrine at the very least, maybe heretical doctrine on the outside. It is bad. How could you say something like that because if you believe that evolution happened that adam and eve came after billions of years or millions of years of dinosaurs and And hominids dying off you've put death before sin Romans chapter 5 can no longer be authoritative Paul said that death came because of sin and sin came because of adam And you want to tell me that there's death before sin Do you know what these guys said about that? Well Paul's only talking about human death. Lamoureux goes so far as to say, well, yeah, that's what Paul believed, but Paul was wrong. I'm not kidding. These are the top guys in evangelical scholarship today. Well, that's what he believes. Yeah, Paul believed that, but Paul was wrong because Paul didn't know about evolution. Do you understand where this is going to? And I'm trying to wrap this up. This is one of those, like, I could get on this soapbox and just kick it for days. Well, I have. The problem is one of authority Who gets to decide What part of the bible is true And what part isn't And what these guys are basically saying is this The bible is true Except when it conflicts with Real history The bible is true Except when it conflicts with Real science The bible is true except when it Conflicts with real astronomy and Real anthropology And what are they actually saying They don't even understand they're saying this. They're saying the Bible is true unless it conflicts with secular philosophy. And you know what? Most Christians agree with them. You want to know why? Because most Christians, we were raised in that real history. We were raised in that secular society. That tiny little microcosm of secular discipleship that we call school. We picked up thinking processes from there that we don't even admit to today, and it's dominating the church. Get married and have three or four kids and see what everybody says. Have four kids in four years and see what everybody in the church says to you. You know what causes that? Why are you all having so many kids? I didn't know that they were a burden. Well, don't you know if you have a lot of kids, it's going to cost you a lot of money? I didn't know that was a problem. You see, we are taught in this secular institution by our peers, by the people in our classes, by the textbooks, by the people that we're around. We are Hellenized. We are taught that, hey, you should have a small family. If you really have to, you should have a small family. But it would be even better if you didn't. And the best is to not even get married. Yeah, right? I mean, that's the overarching theme. Hey, go out there, have fun, mess around with other people, have sex before your marriage. That's fine. You'll find out what you like. And if you just have to, you know, just squeeze every bit of fun out of life. And if you really just have to, go ahead and get married. But when you do get married, I mean, don't have kids right away. Good heaven's sakes, that's ridiculous. And when you have kids, don't have too many of them. I mean, come on here. Let's, let's put the reins on. And we come into church, and we have the same kind of rhetoric come out of our mouths. Where did we get that? We didn't get it from the scriptures. We got it from being Hellenized. We've been very thoroughly and very efficiently and very effectively Hellenized. <laughs> Look, folks, the truth of the matter is that we don't we don't have to have large families, we don't have to have lots of kids, but if not, we better just practice wearing burkas. That's the truth. I had a couple of kids tell me that in class the other day. A couple of girls. Talking to, well, one day they want to get married, but I don't I don't know if I want to have any kids. And I said, You don't want to have any kids? Oh, no, golly, they're gonna be a lot of work. What's wrong with work? I thought that was a good thing, right? Oh, I don't know. They just they just wear me out. Yep, they will. No doubt about it. Is that a bad thing? Well, I just I just can't imagine having like I mean maybe two, but more than two, that's crazy. And I literally told them this. I said, Well, you should get a burqa and practice wearing it around. And they like, kind of looked at me funny. I said, Well uh, look, Muslim families don't have any problem having six, seven, eight, nine kids. And if you're only going to have two, then it's not going to take long. I mean, do the math. Right? Over a few generations, you're getting phased out. Okay? So, get a burqa, wear it around. Okay. Here's what I'm getting at theistic evolution is a problem only because we've allowed secular humanism to dominate the thinking of Christianity period, in America. The West has let secular humanism dominate our thinking, and we've allowed it to dominate our thinking so much that we will allow it to tell us what parts of the Bible are true and what parts aren't. And I'm going to tell you something, folks, that's a very dangerous game to play. You're going to tell me, this is, I've literally had this conversation with two of my professors, who were not happy with me for having this conversation, who told me, well look, yes, we realize that you, because they first told me, we don't think you can write a thesis about because I've wrote like two or three of them about uh genesis being literal and why it should be taken as literal and here's the textual evidence and here's the scientific evidence and here's the philosophical philosophical problems here's now we don't want you to talk about that anymore and i said um i have some questions for you do you think it's a problem that we don't take genesis as literal no of course not you know science has proven to us that's not how it happened and i said okay You've got three hours of science training, and you have six, and I have 96, and you're telling me that my science is bad. Okay. There was only one other science guy at that whole university, and he's a young earth creationist. So I said, why don't you get him on the panel? They didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. No way, man. That's, that's crazy. We're not putting him on here. I said, okay, so we're, what you're telling me is now that we are in a time where we will allow scientific redactionism. Do you guys know what redaction is? What does it mean to redact something? Take it away. Take it out. Yep. Scientific redactionism would say this. Well, we read Genesis, but this can't literally be true because the scientific community objects. I literally wrote this to him. I said, well, uh, I've got a lot of friends that are scientists, and I go to science conferences all the time and talk to other science educators. Should I take a poll about what they think on the ability of a virgin to be pregnant? Are we going to throw that out? I mean, What's the scientific merit of that? You think the scientific community, 87% of which by poll are unbelievers, are going to say, yep, Mary was a virgin. She had Jesus, but she was a virgin. Let's ask them the validity of a dead man rising from the grave three days later, shall we? Should we take that part of our faith out too? Let's ask them about the sun standing still for a day or so so you can finish a battle. Let's ask them how that goes. What do you think the validity is going to be of Jonah getting swallowed by a big fish over there in uh, the Middle East somewhere? You think they're going to believe that one? So is this how we should do our faith? We should just take a consensus of unbelieving scientists who are, they're of course unbiased. Jesus says they're actively against me. And that's the people that we should be submitting our faith to? Hey, what parts of the Bible can I really believe? You you tell me, because you're a really smart scientist, and you're unbiased, of course. No. Folks, we have been Hellenized, and we've allowed it. And then when it comes out in our universities, we think, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do about the problem? Well, i got an idea. Let's stop being Hellenized. Call me crazy. Ted Davis, this is a scholar. Perhaps the ultimate question is this. When is it that we're justified to reinterpret a biblical text on the basis of science? I have an answer. Never. Because when he says science, what he means is humanism. What he means is Darwinian philosophy. If Darwinian philosophy disagrees, we we should reinterpret that text. That's hogwash, and you know it, and I know it. Okay. He who's not with me is against me. There are no neutral sideline observers. None. Certainly not the curriculum in our public schools. We think they're neutral. They're not neutral. That's where the word disciple comes from, guys. Comes from discipline. They come to school, they come to my classroom, and I'm supposed to teach them the discipline of science. I'm supposed to teach them how to think according to modern science. And then they go to the next classroom, and they're taught how to think according to modern history. And then they go to the next classroom, and they're taught how to think according to modern grammar and linguistics and and the great writers throughout our ages, modern literature. I sometimes say that to my students. They come into the class, hello, my little science disciples. We don't realize that education is discipleship. And so we don't, we don't take that into our minds when we go into our science class. We just suck in what's taught. Or we go into our history class, we suck in what's taught. We go into our grammar or literature class, we just suck in what's taught. And then we are somehow amazed when we have a kid that's imbibed this for 10, 12, 15 years, and they're not thinking properly like a Christian. Well, of course they're not. They've been discipled to be a humanist. Don't you think their thinking's going to be a little different? And this, here's what I'm saying to you, students. You need to know that. They're not neutral. Your professors aren't neutral. Your teachers at school aren't neutral. And here's the big part. The curriculum is not neutral. I can ask the kids in my history class, the the kids in my school, the history, they're in history classes, right? U.S. history classes. I can ask them who Thomas Jefferson is. They can probably offer me an answer. I can ask them who George Washington is. They can probably offer me an answer. What if I asked them who Edwards is? What if I asked them about Whitfield? Why wouldn't they be able to tell me? I mean, they've been in that neutral history class. Surely they've heard about these guys. Impossibly... The greatest movement to ever shape American history was the first great awakening. Those two guys were the pillars of the first great awakening, and not one of my students knows them, until I tell them about them. Why? Because that curriculum's not neutral either. If we are going to if we're going to overcome theistic evolution, if we're going to overcome that, we have to understand that we are being Hellenized little bit by little bit. We're living in a culture, every Christian has lived in a culture that tried to Hellenize them in some sort of some sense. We're living in a culture that's trying to push us into its mold. It's trying to push us into its mold through the school, through the media, through the things that we're exposed to day after day, and here's what I'm saying. If we are going to have consistent worldviews, if we're going to think like Christians are supposed to think, if we're going to be renewed in the spirit of our minds then we're going to have to understand that the culture is trying to Hellenize me bit by bit and I must therefore take those things that are trying to be taught to me and I must take them and stick them under the authority of Scripture. And I must say, does Scripture hold this point up or not? Because if it does not, I must reject that. I must live differently than my culture. I can't be a good Greek. You can't be a good Greek and be a good Christian," Jesus said, "No man can serve two masters. And he wasn't just talking about money. No man can serve two masters. You are not. You have one choice, okay? The choice is, are you going to be ridiculed by your culture, or are you going to stand up and try to be, you know, well thought of? First John says there are three basic drives. In our hearts. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and here's the third one. The pride of life. I want everybody to esteem me. I want them to think highly of me. And you know how I do that? I show them how smart I am in their way of thinking. Yeah, I can I can I can amalgamate my Christianity with their Darwinistic thinking. And you know what people will think of me then? They'll really think highly of me. I'll become well known like a William Lane Craig, or I'll become well known like any of the others? Dennis Lamero, Peter Innes. Well, here's the truth of the matter. You do that, and your witness and your life for Christ will come to a screeching halt. Because you're no longer willing to live out your faith. If you stand up and say, I believe the scriptures are inspired of God, and I believe what they teach is accurate, I promise you, Our culture will mock you and ridicule you. But I also promise you, that's the life Christ called you to. You stand up and be different. You can't be salt and light if you're not different from what you're around. Salt's a preservative. You know why? Because it's not like all the other stuff around it. You know why you rub salt in the meat? Because the meat will rot if there's no salt. You know what's happening to our culture? It's rotting. You know why? Because we've got a lot of Christians that aren't very salty. And they go into their place of influence, they go into their business, they go into whatever place they're at, and they refuse to speak about Jesus because, by golly, if I do that, it's going to cause tension between people. Yes, yes it will. It will offend people. It will. Even when you're not trying to be offensive. I'm not saying go be a jerk. I've, I've had my days of that. I am saying go be salty. Don't be like all the rotting meat around you. You can't preserve it if you're rotting meat. Go be light. Right? Why did Jesus say that? Nobody puts their light under a bushel. Why? Quit hiding your light. Your job and my job is to be salt and light in the culture, and that is to speak up and say, this is sin, this is wrong. Why do you believe that? Because the Bible says so. Why do you believe the Bible? Good question. Let me give you some answers. That's okay. Yeah, but I won't be the cool guy anymore. You're right, you won't be. People, people might not like me very much. You don't understand. Yeah, I do understand. And you're right, they might not like you very much. But the purpose of this life is not to have a whole bunch of people like you. The purpose is to glorify God. And one of the ways we glorify God is trying to tell people the gospel so that they don't wind up in hell. Look, if that person's mad at me for 15 years, but what I said is used by God to save them from hell, it's worth it! Okay. Let me be fast about this. I want you to notice something. Uh, There was a a book that was written by a big creationist society. They said uh, they wanted to find out, hey, when are people leaving the faith? And this is what they actually found out. They asked, when did you first doubt Christianity? 39.8% in middle school, 43.7% in high school. That's more than 80%. The first doubts they came were not in college. It was in high school or, or middle school. They got to college and went crazy because their parents aren't making them, forcing them to adhere to some sort of moral standard anymore. It wasn't that they lost their faith, quote-unquote, when they went to college. What was in their heart was finally able to come out unrestrained. And what was in their heart was a bunch of paganism that they'd imbibed. Let me tell you something. When we try to mix these two, which one of those is going to get amalgamated? You don't mix them. You must stand up and give an apologetic. You don't mix Darwinian theory with God's holy word and get something that's good and right and true. God's word's already pure, right? Like silver that's been refined seven times in the fire. It's pure, very pure. What are the consequences? Well, here's one of them. The theological evolutionists will say, well, the flood is just local. It doesn't actually flood the whole earth. Well, if the flood's only local, God's a covenant breaker. God gave his word with the rainbow. He would never do whatever it was that he just did again. And if that was only a local flood, then he's broken his word a lot of times. That is a problem. There is no way you're going to get sound, cogent theological doctrine out of this amalgamation. You're not going to get it. Here's some other ones. How about the sanctity of life? Why is it wrong to kill people, including babies in the womb? Genesis chapter 9. Uh, are children, families, and a growing population a good thing? Families, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 9. Marriage, why is marriage only a relationship between one man and one woman? Jesus himself quoted this, Genesis chapter 2. Gender, why can a man not change his sex to that of a woman or a woman to a man? Genesis one twenty-seven. Work, why is it important to seek out a vocation that's pleasing to God and in accordance to how he's made you? Why is work a good thing? Also in Thessalonians, right? He who doesn't provide for those of his family... Is worse than an unbeliever having denied the faith. Yeah, I don't, I know we don't like to talk about that one. Time. How do we ultimately keep track of the passage of time? Lots of others. Food? What can we eat? What's okay to eat? What's not okay to eat? I've literally had, I had a girl that was a very hardcore vegan in class when I was in Texas. She was like, You are, I can't believe a person like she thought really highly of me. She's like, I can't believe a person like you would eat meat. I said, believe it, sister. She was like. You would kill an animal and eat it? Yes. She said, I can't believe you're not vegetarian. I said, well, I'm an indirect vegetarian. Cows eat the grass. I eat the cow. It's Pretty much the same thing, right? (laughs) Environmental stewardship. Why are we supposed to take care of the environment? Why shouldn't we be throwing trash out on the highway all the time? Well, that's not addressed in the Bible anywhere. Well, it is in the principles that are addressed. Yeah, we're supposed to steward our creation. Death and corruption, struggles with sin, meaning of life. There are lots and lots and lots, and I'm not going to get in this next part. I'm going to stop there. There are lots and lots and lots of parts of Christian theology that have their beginning in Genesis chapter 1 to 11. How about the proto Evangelion? I mean, that's kind of a big deal. The first time the promise of a Messiah. Where did God's redemption plan come from? Well, the first time it ever is talked about is in Genesis, not in Romans, right? That's kind of a big deal. Was God telling us he was going to figuratively come save us from our figurative sin? Because if if we say that Genesis 1-11 is figurative, that's what we've got. It's not. Close with this. We're being Hellenized. And God's word tells us in Romans 12 not to be pushed into the mold of the world. And that means don't be pushed into the way of thinking of the world. The world thinks it's okay to be like this, to be a Greek. It thinks you should jettison anything of your Christian faith that does not line up with secular humanistic philosophy. And I'm here to tell you that's not our way. That's not our faith. Our job is to be salt and to be light, and that means we're going to be different. And it may cause us to be mocked, and it may cause us to be ridiculed. So what? The purpose of life is not for being the most popular guy in town the purpose of life is glorifying christ and sometimes that means being not the popular guy and that's okay jeremiah preached a long long time and nobody listened isaiah preached a long long time nobody listened noah preached 120 years and nobody changed they weren't failures because of it god used them to do exactly what he wanted out of them okay let's pray father forgive my rambling mess God, I ask you would use your word, not my words, your word. Use your word, Lord, to change our minds. Let us be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Let us think like you want us to think. Let us think like Christians and let us act accordingly. Father, I ask you would let us have the courage to stand up and say, I believe your word and I believe it from the very first verse. Let us have the courage to be different, not to be like everybody else, but to be different. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.